Hello, everyone. You're listening to Battle Red Radio. I'm Matt Weston. Tonight, I'm joined by Tro- by Troy, as you know, as Texans Cap. How are you doing tonight, Troy? Oh, doing good, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to do this. I was I had a lot of fun on your show last week, and we did like a home and away series to have you on tonight. And it's been you know something that I should have done a long time ago, but um, it's never it's never too late at all to have a a good podcast and talk to somebody who has a, a very is very intelligent and has a, a really good niche too and is the answers for something that's a uh, people that's confusing and that people have a lot of questions about typically. No, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah, no, I'll follow along with the uh, Battle Red blog for quite a few quite a few number of years now, and you know y'all put out great quality content, and you know happy to be on here with you. Yeah, so this week we watched the Texans get blanked by the Indianapolis Colts. 31-0, to zero. and it was a game that was really similar to the first time these two teams played where the Colts ran the ball well, the Texans had some problems stopping the run, except this time they at least didn't give up the big plays. Carson Wentz, you know, barely barely threw for 150 yards. The Texans had problems running the football um, against some of the best run defenses in the league, and they also did that thing, too, where they did not attack the weakest part of the Colts' defense, which is stopping the vertical passes, and you know, both Tyrod Taylor and Davis Mills you know, didn't even attempt you know, passes down the deeper sideline parts of the field. So Tyrod Taylor was 5 of 13 for 45 yards and an interception on the first throw of the game, and he took two sacks. He had QBR of 2.7. He hurt his wrist, supposedly, and was in the big blue medical tent up in the sky with David Johnson, and he wasn't seen from again. After that came in Davis Mills, and he was 6 for 14 for 49 yards, averaging 3.5 yards in 10, took two sacks, and had QBR 6.2, but he did not throw an interception. Uh, both of their box scores were nearly identical. It was kind of bizarre, like they were, you know, identical twins separated at birth. Uh, who do you think had the better game this one, if you had to pick one of the two? Oh, do I really have to pick one? Yeah, you have Goodness. to pick one. Yeah, no, then, then Mills did. I mean, he, Tyrod, he's just definitely not the same since coming back from his injury, and you know that first that interception on the first play of the game was just a clear indication of where he's at with with this offense with Tim Kelly with this team it just he seems he's he was you know portrayed as a leader very calm very you know suited for this type of culture rebuild and he's starting to almost look a little disinterested and I think Davis Mills had the better game just from just from you know his command of the huddle command of the command of the offense from what little there was you know, and you know, Davis Mills is Davis Mills, but he he at least pushed the ball down, pushed the ball down the field just a hair bit more than than Taylor. And you know, as you said, didn't attack the vertical lines, didn't really attack the middle of the field. You know, as we saw, I don't really think Taylor even targeted or had a reception to a wide receiver mm-hmm. in his uh in his five or his five uh, completions were to tight end and running back. So, yeah, I mean, at this point, it's Mills, and it's got to be Mills going forward i you know we heard coley today talk about you know he couldn't taylor couldn't grip the ball but they said it was his left hand and then i saw rapport said that they were doing an mri for potential ligament damage so all that tells me 
you know, maybe Taylor could play through the pain, but what's the point at, you know, what's, what, what would be the reasoning for keeping Taylor at this point when you, when you clearly have been saying that whoever gives you the best chance to win is who should be playing. And Taylor is not giving you any more of a chance to win than what Mills can bring. So to me, it feels like it's got to be Mills the rest of the way on out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what uh, I was going to lose to that too. David Cole was saying that, you know, they're going to go with the quarterback who gave him the best chance to win. And so you know, you kind of made clear that you agree with the statement and you want to see Mills play over Taylor. I guess that's to make the point, like, both these guys are bad, <laughs> you know? Like, we watched Davis Mills start, and he lost every start that he had. The one, you know, game where he actually looked like a quarterback was against the New England Patriots, where they didn't blitz a whole lot until the second half, and he made, you know, one deep throw off a of flea flicker that was, you know, a good throw in stride, and then he made two throws he's never made in his entire life before. And aside from that, you know, he hasn't thrown the ball downfield really well at all or even have the opportunity to do so, which was his best skill at Stanford, I thought. And then aside from that deep throw down the sideline to Brandon Cooks, and they were down by 30 points, like that's it from him as well, too. And so like no matter what you pick here, it's going to probably be a team where you may not win a game for the rest of the year, even as bad as the Jaguars are playing. And if you're in that set of circumstances anyways, why not go with the younger guy here who has the chance of some like idea of or illusion potential that I don't really think exists at all, but at least like you're playing the guy who's 23 instead of 32. Yeah, I mean you've got to get, you've got to continue that evaluation of Mills, and this is your perfect opportunity. You know, we some you know I, you hear some analysts say that he faced a pretty rough set of defenses during his starts, and you know if we come in forward, then he has a few softer, I guess, softer defenses that he can go up against with Seattle and a, you know Jacksonville coming up. But you've got to continue the evaluation. You know what you have in, in Taylor. I mean that's it's not going to change and. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was earlier in the season, I was, you know, on the Tyrod Taylor train. Yeah, let's bring him back next year. In my opinion, week in, you know, week by week, it's just lessening and lessening. And now I'd, I, I'd rather just see them find another bridge option for, for 2022, like we talked about the other night. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think Taylor's should even be considered for 2022. So if you consider that mindset, then it's got to be Mills, both from an evaluation standpoint and that you already know what you have in Taylor. Yeah, I agree with that too. And I mean, I, I I think the biggest difference between Taylor and Mills, you know, compared to the first part of the week, whenever you know Mills took over, and I mean, he still got the chance to play against the Colts, who have a bad you know pass defense. But really, like just like Tim Kelly's inability to scheme any open throws from it all, and just chaining them to you know four passing concepts, you know, and it's like it's a sprint right sprint right rollout. It's the drag over the middle. It's the slant against cover three. It's the screen pass. Like those are the only four passing concepts they ran at all. And it's very easy to defend if you're going to be that mundane with the offense too. Um, but so since Taylor has returned, the Texans have scored nine, twenty-two, fourteen, and zero points despite forcing twelve turnovers. Of course, in that game against the Titans, when they scored twenty-two, uh, they forced five turnovers in that one. Do you think there's a chance that Tim Kelly loses his play calling duties? Is there anything out there that you think Tim Kelly does well as an offensive coordinator? For the first question on losing his play calling duties, I mean, it, we got to look at it, you know, behind him would be Pep Hamilton who hasn't called plays. If we exclude his XFL work, he hasn't <laughs> called plays, I think. Yeah. I mean, well, I guess that's, but I mean, it, he hasn't really called plays for a good number of years. So whether or not, you know, he, 
can step in and take over that role. Maybe so. Would it would it change things up? I don't know, but you know, I don't. Th- if you think of it from that aspect, yeah, he could lose his play calling duties. But do I think Coley's going to take the reins away from him? No, I think Coley's going to stick with him for the rest of the year. There's really nothing. You know, he keeps standing up for he keeps standing up for Coley. I mean, again today is saying that it's execution and coaching. It's not the scheme, and mm-hmm. which which is hard to take take in as a fan. You know, to listen to that over and over when the scheme is clearly not working, but. Should he lose playing Colin? Are you sure? I mean, maybe send a message, but I don't know. I don't know that there's really any anything to be had from taking play calling duties away from him and bringing in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. And like the Hamilton thing too. You know, when, once that's one thing that is a grievance of mine the off season. Whenever they hire a position coach and people get excited about it and uh, are very, you know, looking forward to exposition coach and how he's going to do this, but we don't know what they do at all, you know? Like, I can't sit here and say Pep Hamilton's good or isn't or should take over as the play-calling duties at all. But, I mean, just Tim Kelly's been so bad, and just even, like, his the decision to hire him to him next year as, like, a half-part appeasement to Deshaun Watson was silly. And, like, the only good game he really has had as a play-caller was the game against Jacksonville where... He did a very very elementary thing of just scheming rub routes against man coverage with the defense that was like new and young and inexperienced and couldn't pass you know routes at all from one another out of the pistol. And aside from that, in the screen pass he had against Cleveland, he really hasn't designed a good game plan at all this year. And the run game's been a mess. The pass concepts have been simple. Um, they don't do a very good job, you know, with man coverage beaters and even like the cover four, cover seven stuff. We talked about against the Jets last week when they took away the entirety of their middle-of-the-field passing game just by using a robber in cover four. Um, just like things that aren't like super crazy at all against bad defenses, and they've, and they've still have problems with it too. But like I think Tim Kelly should be, you know, let go and be able to switch around to somebody else, but I don't think they're going to do it as well either. Is he still, this is probably a question that you'd be able to answer better than us, he's still running that, what O'Brien ran with that Yankee concept with the two receivers, one that, you know, goes deep and one runs the post where they're crossing 20, 30 yards, 20, 30 yards down the field. He ran that as a staple with Hopkins and Fuller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Are I they mean, still running that today? That's just, that's like something that you run, you know, against cover three. Um, off the top of my head, I think they ran it once against the Jaguars and they kind of ran something similar against the Jets last week to create that, you know, open throw to Collins and that one to, or the one to Cooks, where they had, you know, the two crossers, but it was a lot, like, skinnier, and it was more like a, a vertical, like, post instead of that typical Yankee concept. But they haven't done a whole lot, and they just haven't had teams play a lot of cover three against them, though, because they can't run the football, and there's no point to play cover three unless you're, you need that eighth guy to stop the run. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. And so, yeah, and it, that that would be my one question, and you know, unfortunately, this past week we saw, you know, the one time that Taylor was able to connect with a uh, wide receiver and and Collins, he he lined up on the line of scrimmage and covered up the mm-hmm. tight end. So, <laughs> you know, it's just the way. That's just a kind of a signifier of what we're what's happening <laughs> with this team. That the one time they get a good you know good gain, good play, they get. They they get it pulled back on a on a penalty that was very simple and stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I'm like still it doesn't even seem real that Tara Taylor started didn't complete one pass to a wide receiver. Um, yet Farrell Brown had that fumble as well too. 
And then Mills comes in and completes three pa- three passes to Brandon Cooks, and that's it. They only had three receptions by a wide receiver, and they rolled to Brandon Cooks last week. And it's just like it's something that just seems so like impossible in a professional football situation. And this isn't like Alabama State playing Alabama. This is two professional football teams playing against one another. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, we're maybe maybe things will change under Hamilton. I don't know. I don't know that the scheme with with the run with the run concepts that they continue to try to use are going to work. Who knows? And maybe, like you said, I mean, it, maybe it's worth a shot. I mean, it, I, you you figure maybe this team has got one more win in them for the rest of the year. You know, maybe maybe they won't have any more wins, and Detroit can sneak another win out and bump bump the Texans up the draft board. But uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I, as of today, I don't think he's going to do it. Yeah, I guess the one good thing about Hamilton, just knowing his background, especially being from Stanford, you think that he could at least scheme like a, a power run attack, you know, and like I've talked about all year this year is that the Texans have run a little bit of everything in the passing game and the run game after they tried to be an outside zone team that failed you know, miserably. And now they do a little bit of everything. They're kind of bad at it all. And it's how it was like during the Bill O'Brien era where they didn't have, you know, a central run scheme that they could always hang their hat on. And they're doing kind of the same thing this year too. But I think Hamilton, just with his Stanford ties, they could run a lot more power, a lot more counter, a lot more dart, you know, and, and run more, you know, two and three time personnel formations that may actually have a, have the guys knowing who to block, you know. And that's the only thing about Hamilton. You expect a lot of play action, too, that, you know, maybe there's something there at all, but I don't think we're going to see it. No, and I think, you know, people kind of lean on what Justin Herbert did under him when he was the QB coach, and you kind of just carry over that expectation. And, you know, and unfortunately, that was just a great situation. Herbert turned out to be a, it's turned out to be a very good, potential very good quarterback and I think a lot of fans were saw that and was bringing it over and thought oh he's gonna do do the same over here and that's just not the case yeah it's just like well Herbert's like a transcendental quarterback you know with his arm strength and everything else and it was the efficient efficiency cation of Joe Lombardo it's kind of neutered him to start the season off for the first 11 weeks and he at least like threw the ball downfield last week and that was the big difference in that Bengals game so the Texans had another new offensive line iteration this week with Justin McCray out with the concussion and Justin Britt back in the lineup replacing Jimmy Morrissey. We had Tyus Hart left tackle, Lane Taylor at left guard, Justin Britt at center, Max Sharping at right guard, and Charlie Heck at right tackle. Against a great run defense, the Texans backs only at 13 carries for 42 yards. And this wasn't a, the typical Texans game or a game where they went down like 21-0 in the first quarter. They just gave up seven points every quarter. And so it is kind of surprising considering that they were down by, you know, 14 through the first half of it, that they only had 13 carries. Um, but these these came out to 3.2 yards a carry, and they had DVA below negative 30% again. And these front also had 11 quarterback hits, four sacks, and four tackles for a loss. Uh, how do you think this offensive line configuration fared? Did you watch much about the offensive line specifically when you were watching this offense twirl around? Yeah, I mean, it, it. Britt definitely seemed to be a, a, a minor step up above Morrissey. You know, him and Taylor in the left side with Howard seemed to be a little more, a little more put together than the previous what eight iterations. So I think this is iteration number nine. You know, Heck still had some some issues out there on the on the right side. The one person that actually kind of surprised me was Sharping. He was. He seemed to have a little more get up in his step, and he was getting to the second level on on a few of the runs. And you know, it was 
a welcome sight to see. It's not what, what we would expect out of a second round draft pick, you know, in his third year in the league. But I mean, is it this, I mean, I, absent not having Tunsil available, this is probably your best offensive line group that we've seen this year, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah, I, I just watched Ty's Howard Pass protect. That's pretty much the only thing I watched in the offenses on the field and didn't have uh, much of an eye for the rest of it, but I'll make sure to watch it tomorrow. So let's say, so th- if this is your favorite offensive line combination, you know, basically the Texans currently have here, with Larry Tunsil on the roster, uh, if he was back to health, actually, what would your ideal Texans offensive line combination be? Uh, we would. Sh- I would shift Howard back to right tackle if Tunsil has to come back and play and leave the interior three as is. I mean, McCray and, and Sharping are almost interchangeable at this point. I don't know that Cole Toner or anybody else on this roster is, is a better guard than McCray or Sharping, unfortunately. So that would be that would be my one change if if Tunsil did come back would shift Howard out to the right tackle. Yeah, personally, just because of the my own hatred in my heart, I would just keep Laramie Tunsil just sideline the rest of the year. Yeah, so I, I, guess, I didn't know that was an option. Yeah, yeah, it's a, you can you can take it however as you want to take it. Yeah, I mean we we heard it today and it was because I, I I think I tweeted it. I think Coley actually said it was a a personal decision so, is playing into some of whether or not Tunsil's playing and mm-hmm. I'd already kind of I'd already been on the record that that I think Tunsil's done for the year I don't think he ha- I don't think he wants to come back there's nothing there's nothing for him to gain coming back this season there's only things for him to lose and that's from an injury standpoint mm-hmm. or putting worse tape out there for any potential trade partners or whatever whatever may happen in the offseason so there's in the team at this point you might as well put do the evaluation on Howard at left tackle in case yeah. you make a move with Tunsil in the offseason. So there's really nothing to gain for the team or for Tunsil to come back and play another snap this year. So given all that, you know, I, I don't see any re- – I, I personally don't think Tunsil's going to come back this year. There's there's nothing for him to come back to. Yeah, that's a great point. And we had a Twitter question from at found of HOU Sports, and I guess the way David Cole described it was a day-by-day situation – uh, this is the the tweet from the the young beat reporter. I can't remember his name. I'll tell my head. But that's a day by day. Yeah, Brooks. Uh, it was a day by day situation with Starlove tackle. Larry Tunsil returned from the injury reserve. He had thumb surgery mid October. It was expected to miss four weeks. Coley says it's a combination of personal decision and medical staff advice. <laughs> um, yeah, but, that was the one I quote tweeted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, what a hilarious uh, sentence. But he said some thoughts on Tunsil this gem. And like, yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think there's a point for Tunsil to play at all. And you're better off with, you know, Howard out there at left tackle. And I think he could just be like, you know, 90% of Tunsil as a pass protector over there. You know, I think he got kind of shocked by Ronald Blair against the Jets last week. Um, but I'd rather see Howard out there at left tackle and Trey Tunsil, you know, next season. And like, I've been on like the bandwagon that, you know, whenever the trade that happened, that left tackles are important, but they're not that important. That, you know, $21 million, two first-round picks, and a second-round pick for a non-quarterback position is, you know, insane. And, like, Tensil's game is that he's a top-10 pass protector, but he's pretty meek as a run blocker and just, like, isn't, you know, nasty enough. And that's an important part of playing the offensive line position. And especially, like, if he's, like, your leader and kind of the, the guy who looks up to in the offensive line, he's, you know, kind of playing patty cake. I think kind of, like, pushes, has kind of, like, a domino effect as far as the entire mentality of the offensive line goes. But... You know, I think it's it'd be best, like you mentioned too, where he sits out the rest of the year. You trade him next year, 
I think you get a late first-round pick or an early second-round pick for him considering his contract. I think Jackson will be a really good spot even if he got picked, you know, 34, 35 out of it. I just don't know which teams towards, like, the end of the draft or uh, would want to actually trade, you know, a first-round pick for Utensil and take on that contract as well too. Yeah, I think, yeah, somebody had asked me about that today and I didn't really have an answer and a late one early two probably makes a little bit of sense. I would lean more towards a two at this point because he's due uh, 36.3 million over the next two years. Mm. And, you know, that's that's a, a, that's a big chunk of money. B, the short-term contract that the Texans gave him, that three-year extension is going to come back and bite him because any team not only had taken on that $36 million with 10, $10 million of it's guaranteed right off the bat, you're you're gonna probably have to extend him after 2022. So not only you giving up, let's just say a top of the you know top ten in the in the second round, you know pick 32 or 33 through 40, you're gonna you give up that pick. You're gonna get him for two years at least at the you know at a minimum, but you're had to give him a new extension after one year. And he's very very savvy when it comes to the business side of things. You know, he's he's got a lot of hands in his cook a lot of a lot of cookie jars with his hand in when it comes to business outside of football. You know, he's big into fashion, he's big into a lot of that exposure. So I say that to say that his next contract is gonna be another very strong contract, even if he just continues the performance and the the type of play that he's putting out there right now where you say and I agree with you that he's, you know, he's a top five when it comes to pass blocking. He's, you know, he's middle of the pack when it comes to run blocking. So is he really a top three left tackle? Probably not. But he's going to, he's paid like it. And his next contract, he's going to get paid like it again. So it's going to be, you got to find a really comfortable spot for a team to take all that on the money, the new potential new contract and the draft pick. So hopefully the team can find a trade partner for him. You know, it, they, Unfortunately, Nick Casario pushed some more money out with a full restructure on him. So, if they trade him next year, it's you know they'll still save roughly ten million dollars on the cap if they trade him because Tunsil's got a twenty-six million dollar cap charge in twenty twenty-two and with sixteen million in debt. So it's crazy. You get almost ten. Yeah, you get almost 10, almost ten million back in savings. But you know, at the end of the day, that's probably the move that's going to have to be made, and then. That's why the evaluation on Howard is so important now because it helps you decide, is he a left tackle? Is he a right tackle? Is he here beyond that? Because the team has a critical decision with Howard as well. Come May of 2022, they they need to make a decision on his fifth-year option. Mm -hmm. And with this new CBA, it's not – it's fully guaranteed soon as they hit the option. And I think his option for 2023, I think is going to be 12.7 million, which by tackle standards, that's, that's easy to take on. That's not a big deal, but you're committing, you know, that money becomes fully guaranteed at the time. So you're committing 14, almost $15 million at in May of next year through 2023. So that's something the team has to, a, that's why there's so many factors in this is a, you've got to, Find a train partner for Tunsil. You've got to decide, is Howard your left tackle or is he your right tackle? And if whichever one he is, is he in your future plans? And if he is, do you do the fifth-year option or are you just make him play out on the last year and then look at a franchise tag option in 2023 if he can if he continue, you know, finds a way to, to improve? 
you know, the franchise tag is going to be 16, 17 million. So there's a lot of fluctuating factors mm-hmm. there. The team's going to have to, Casario is going to have to really dive into when it comes to the offseason, determining around what to do with Tunsil and Howard. Yeah, I think the fifth-year option thing makes it more imperative. I didn't know they changed it to guaranteed where you see teams, you know, make the fifth-year option decision, and then once the next year rolls around, they would just cut them, and then the money's not guaranteed that fifth year, and there's really, like, no, like, lose-lose at all for the team that they make that fifth-year option. But with that change, it kind of changes that part of it, too. Um, and, like, looking at the Tensil trade partners as well next year, like, if you look at the top 10 part of the draft, the Lions suddenly love tackle, but the Jaguars do. Like, Cam Robinson is, like, at, I think he's like the the Mendoza line of left tackles. Like if Cam Robinson's <laughs> your left tackle, like that's fine. You can't get any worse than Cam Robinson be able to have like a functioning offense. And so he's gonna be a free agent next year. And so I couldn't imagine them retaining yep. him. And you think they would look into free agency with seventy million dollars in cap space or being the Tensil sweepstakes? Maybe that pick thirty five is good enough for that. Um, and the Panthers are another team because they're ninth as of right now at five and seven. They have, you know, historically, you know, bad offensive line play right now. Um, and I'll never forget them for trading for Sam Darnold, giving up draft capital for Sam Darnold, just to put him behind a bad offensive line all over again. And we already know what that looks like. And the other team, and those are really the only two teams here that could use the left tackle picking the top I, 10. I would put the, the Seahawks in there. I would put the Seahawks in there because I think this is Dwayne Brown's last year. And it remains to be seen if they're if they're gonna they didn't want to extend him this year they just reworked his contract so yeah the, but the Jets another, have the Jets have their for I guess they traded their second round pick though yeah that makes sense yeah yeah I would put the Seahawks in there like you said the the Panthers the Giants potentially not the Falcons not the not the Vikings not the Saints it'd be fun to have the Dolphins back involved yeah. in this so. I mean, there's there's a few potential suitors out there, but it's not as many as you would initially hope at first scan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's gonna be there, like it's gonna be available for them to be able yeah. to move on from them. But it's just kind of making the last little bit of work. I think the most annoying thing about Tunsil, though, like I think he's just been kind of a just weird player in Houston, where he looks the part. You know, like he should be so much better than what his actual performance is, and. And he he kind of like he gives up on blocks after a couple seconds and led us some you know sacks of Watson that should have occurred um, you know previously and and just again just like how how meek he was as a linebacker as a run blocker was just so frustrating considering you know his athleticism his strength his feet his quickness it just never fully made any sense how his performance worked here in Houston. Yeah, I'm, I completely agree. I mean, I just it. It's hard to figure him out. It's hard to figure out what he just needs to be. And I think what I had said earlier today was if you can find a spot for him where he's motivated, then the sky, you know, the sky's the limit for him. He just needs to have that right situation where he's motivated. He has a good market around him. And I say market from from a business aspect. So maybe if you can get him into a New York, you know, Boston area, um, you know, something with a good uh, external market for him to flex his his uh, business ventures might give him more motivation from an overall player standpoint. It's crazy that he can make you know uh, he can make fourteen million dollars of a cap hit this year, and uh, and it still isn't enough. You know, or no, not for, he has nine million dollars this year, but he can make you know twenty six million dollars next year. That's still not enough motivation. I guess Seattle can work out as as well too for him because he loves to wear those rock t-shirts and flannels. And so I think he fit in 
you know, up there too as a potential you know bridge from uh, you know, Dwayne Brown. He could always play right tackle over there for a year, I guess. Oh goodness, there you go. <laughs> uh, they can make it work out some way to give him the t-shirts that he likes to wear. Yeah. So the this was another game for the Texans with Carson Wentz, where he'd have to break 200 passing yards for the Colts to score 31 points and win. He only had 16 completions for 151 yards, and he pretty much just forced Michael Pittman in the passing game this week. It was one of the rare times where T.Y. Hilton didn't completely you know, devour him. Uh, Jonathan Taylor, Naheem Hines, and Neon Jackson combined for 41 carries for 186 yards and 4.5 yards a carry. Um, defensively, I think this game was just like kind of exactly what you expected, it, that they would run the ball really well and they wouldn't really need to throw it at all. Uh, was there anything defensively in this one that surprised or interested you? Nothing really jumped out at me. I mean, you know, Malik Collins had another good game. He was, you know, pushing his way into the backfield some. You know, it, it's tough to know because we only saw three quarters of, of the starting group before they started rotating in the back. You know, some of the other players you saw a lot of, uh, I don't know if you want to call them second string, but a lot of death players mm-hmm. in the back in the third quarter and fourth quarter. You know, we saw players like Jimmy Moreland and, and uh, Garrett Wallow out there and Jonathan Owens getting a lot of, you know, getting some snaps. But, you know, Terrence Mitchell had a rough game, unfortunately. And Eric Murray came back to earth. He had another rough game. You know, I, I, loved, Derek, I loved Eric Murray's little, like, whenever he gave that touchdown on that RPO and it was kind of like close to the sideline and he gave like the weakest incompletion uh, arm wave I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it. you know, he had like six quarters between the Titans game and the Jets game where he was, you know, people were thinking, oh, maybe the light bulb's coming on with him. He sat down and he came back after Lonnie Johnson got sat down and then shifted, so maybe something there, but it's not there. And, and you know, you know, we saw Kevin Pierre-Lewis out there as the first time he's had any minimal snaps after uh, the Cunningham uh, benching slash paid suspension leave this week for missing the COVID test. So, you know, nothing really jumped out at me. You know, Grenard had a lot of pressures, just, you know, couldn't get home this week, finishing off his, uh, his sack, sacks, uh, his sack, uh, consecutive sack streak. But, you know, Tavier Thomas had a decent game, but it's just nothing. There's nothing that really just jumped out at me to said, Ooh, this, this guy had a game. It mm-hmm. was just a lot of blah, blah, you know, and from a defensive standpoint, it seems like this game, even with the two short fields right off the bat, that this game should have been a lot worse than 31 points given up. Yeah, it's like the, it was just kind of the like the ideal, like a Colts game against a bad football team. The one, the one thing you forgot about those came McGregor Hill having 20 tackles and uh, and Jack Eastby retweeting the record and then rescinding his retweet after that. Are you ready for McGregor Hill to enter the Ring of Honor? Because Andre Johnson won't be welcome after his uh, Jack used to be your tweet from last year. Yeah, that was, I mean, yeah, the team, I, I feel bad for the, for the PR and for the uh, social media team when they're having to uh, really hype up those kind of things to find some kind of positive spin from the game. So yeah, Grugio Hill, you know, he's all over the place. He's a wild man. He's a maniac, tons of tackles. That's great. Wonderful you know, <laughs> tackle machine. But I really can't say much beyond that. I mean, he did get in the backfield a couple times. He's he seems with his speed. He when they when Lovey sends him, he does seem to find a way to find those creases off the stunts and get into the backfield when he does blitz, which is interesting. And I, you know, he's 
since about week three, week four, he's been on my re resign for the future list, and mm -hmm. that continues on right now. Yeah, he's and he's just really smart too. Like he, a lot of this stuff, I think is he really isn't you know a top athlete all by any means, but he just sees he reads his keys well, and then he gets downhill and attacks the ball whenever he does it. Um, and it's been like he, I he's been my favorite free agent signing. And I may have talked about it last week, but it's just because I thought the signing was so silly at the time, and you know it's been one that actually worked out. Um, but more often than not, the linebacker signings didn't work. And seeing Kevin Pierre-Lewis out this week was kind of funny just because when that Washington team, you know, I always say, like, you can just watch football. With Washington, he was benched for John Bostick and Cole Holcomb, you know, and, uh, and like, he was a coverage linebacker who couldn't cover there. And him getting the contract he got last year after being benched on that Washington defense that was notorious for bad linebacker play uh, was, was kind of funny. And so seeing him out there for Cunningham didn't really, you know, do anything at all for me. And then seeing Walla out there, I've only seen Walla in the field twice. One was whenever he got devoured on the goal line against New England, just like absolutely bulldozed. And then today he was he got you know, uh, caught up in a rub, trying to run out to the flat and defend the uh, throw to the, to the running back that we, he was chasing on immediately. And so maybe we see some Garrett Wallow in the last like kind of five games of the season here too. Yeah, I mean, I'd, it wouldn't shock me at all to see – Cunningham either inactive more for the rest of the season or he's going to be on a limited on a limited snap count and I say that to say he has a I'm trying to remember what kind of, it's a 10 million dollar injury guarantee in 2022 mm -hmm. and you know that'll will vest into a full guarantee for skill cap, you know, for skill cap and injury come, I think March 22nd, but the injury guarantee is already in place. And, you know, we've seen teams do this in the past where if they have an expensive injury, injury guarantee on the following year, they just, yeah, they just kind of quietly just lower the snap count, <laughs> lower the snap count, make them inactive, you know, and just say, you know, and do the coach speak where, you know, we put the best players out there that we felt we needed to win, you know, scheme thing, blah, blah, blah. So it wouldn't shock me from that aspect, just from the money and the cap aspect that they start heading that direction with Cunningham and this, this pseudo uh, suspension, you know, for missing the COVID test was step one of that process. This should just help them get in, get into that process. So the five games you're either going to see, if you see Cunningham, it's going to be in a limited basis going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and Cunningham too, I mean, that was a, like whenever O'Brien signed him, or they extended him, one of the things I was talking about at the time was that, you know, Cunningham is really good in a specific role, and that's him being as a will linebacker, where he just has to, you know, swim past, you know, guards on the backside, and just chase and tackle on a top front seven, and then once they extended him, he was then forced to be, you know, the anchor of the defense last year after McKinney went down, he played Mike linebacker as opposition, and then this year there was some hope that him playing will Again, on uh, on this front seven, even though it wasn't you know a stacked front seven at all, just being back at Will Linebacker would help him. And it's been the same thing all over again. He doesn't read his keys well. He runs himself out of place a lot. He's missed a lot of tackles. He can't cover and never has been able to do so. And it's another one of those like Bill O'Brien uh, decisions whenever he was general manager that were just uh, part of the egregious and outlandish variety, you know? Yep, exactly. I mean, it, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what the team wants to do with him. You know, I think we all know what the team should be doing with him in 2022. So, you know, I the team tried to trade him in the offseason. They tried to trade him in the preseason. They tried to trade him at the deadline. 
if you can't find any trade partners now, you're not going to find any in the offseason. Mm-hmm. So it seems like just a release is inevitable for him. Yeah, so I, this game, I don't really have any other thoughts from it just because it was, you know, as Such a blog exactly game. what you Such expect, a... you know. And it was just like the first one, too, where it's a, a bad run offense that has to run the ball going up against a great run defense. And even then, and it's like a, a poorly schemed offense that doesn't attack teams' weaknesses very well. And the opposite end of it was a, a really bad run defense going up against a great run offense that now their offensive line fully healthy, too. And so, yeah, it was exactly as you expected, and the, and the Texans lost – uh, 31 and zero. And so with that part kind of out of the way, I kind of want to talk to you about this previous offseason and what the Texans may look to do this next upcoming offseason as well. And you know, watching this team this year and looking at the salary cap stuff for this year too and for the future, I mean, one of the things that I just really didn't understand was that their contract restructures that they had. And so this year they have $43 million in dead money after releasing Merciless and Train Shack Lawson, Bradley Roby and Randall Cobb. Uh, Casera restructured Merciless, Lawson, Tunsil, Brandon Cooks, David Johnson, Zach Cunningham to, to create cap space for this season so they could do things like sign Neville Hewitt and Kevin Pierre-Lewis. Um, can you provide like the best reason you can think of that warranted a number of contract restructures that would limit their cap space for the following season? I, I can't, and you know, it's tough to, to understand why they went that path. You know, before, before the offseason started, my my natural assumption was, you know, they're going to release a few, few, a few veterans and they're going to sign a buttload of undrafted players mm-hmm. or very young, inexpensive players to fill the roster up. You know, I was thinking like 25, 30 player undrafted class. Maybe they'll find a player or two out of that that's worth keeping for the long haul. But, uh, you know, a bulk of that would make the roster and just be a very young roster. And he went the complete 180 of what I thought. So in lieu of signing a huge undrafted class, and I don't know if this was a function of him being a first draft with a with a uh, staff that he is not intimately familiar with. I know he's very close with James Lippert, you know, from his ties from New England, but it's not really his scouting staff. You know, generally when you have a GM come in at this point of the year, a bulk the bulk of the scouting's done. So you, you can't just swap them out. You usually wait the following year when you the GM does his turnover and the scouting staff and the scouting department and personnel department get in who they want. So I kind of wonder if it was a function of, A, COVID, when they were had limited access to, to, to the back-end draft players, mm-hmm. you know, the, the undrafted group players, things like that. In addition to not being intimately familiar with this scouting staff, and you know, maybe he just didn't have full trust in their evaluations. So, given all that, and given his 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 knowledge with James Lip, James Lippert, that's where they opted to, in lieu of the John drafted class, let's go with a big free agent class, and it's going to cost a little bit more money. We can find attempt to find players that are going to be in that one to two million dollar range, and that's what they did, and so. Instead of going with the undrafted class, they went with, we could call it, you know, just a big giant free agent class and trying to find two or three players out of that group. It costs more money to go that route. Hence, that's why they need to restructure these contracts to to make that that method and that methodology work. You know, if they didn't have if they went with the big undrafted class, they wouldn't have had to they wouldn't have would not have had to restructure so many contracts. So given the path that they took with the big free agent class, 
that's what that's that's what necessitated all of the the contract restructures. That that makes sense. Uh, that's the best reason I've heard for it. I completely disagree with that strategy for it to make that decision to do so. But that's the only thing. Like that's the only reason why you would make the decision to go this like big bunch of veteran free agents and make the signings that they didn't in order to do so, you know, because of their own contract limitations, the restructures is what created it. But like that that exact ideology though is why, you know, I didn't like Nick Casario's offseason this year and still don't have like a good feel if he's gonna be a good general manager or not, because it was a year of stagnation for Houston this year where like if you're not getting better, you're and if you're staying the same, you're still getting worse. You know, like if if you stay at the exact same level, you're still getting worse because other teams are getting better, and you and yourself are are you know digressing as well too. And so there was just like a dichotomy between you know building for the future and building for this season. And then the veteran free agent contracts were example of that, and also these guys are older too, and so they probably be part of the next good Texans team as well. Anyways, it's not they went and signed you know, guys like Cam Sims who are 25 years old. They signed older players with that big batch of range that they signed this year. Their structures will limit the cap space for next year. Um, they didn't try to collect a lot of draft picks in this year's draft, even though I do think they did a good job in this year's draft aside from the Davis Mills selection. But there was just that, it was just a weird, just like how they had a clash between trying to be like a good team this year and building for a future. And whenever you're looking at a team without Watson, with the allure of like, you know, maybe two or three top 10 draft picks next year, the lack of young talent on the roster, it seemed like the better idea was just be to pay these contracts out for this season, um, make the big moves next year to release them to be able to minimize the dead cap space and maximize your cap space for you know, 2022 instead of kind of like just dipping your toe in the water in 2021. Yeah, and I, I have an, another small conspiracy theory when it comes to what they did this offseason. So okay. There's with the news with this CBA, they changed the cash spending window from four years to three years and they increased it to 90%. So essentially, the team has to spend 90% of their cap each year, uh, accumulative over a three year period in cash, not cap dollars, but cash. And so, if you go and look at the cash spending for this year for the Texans. Let's see here. They were they were midway through the pack, but they they weren't they weren't bargain bin cash spending by any means. So their their cash spending was right at two million two hundred million to just over two hundred million. I think that this big free agent class, the additional cap spending with the restructures, allowed them to spend a little more cash, and gives them that buffer room for twenty twenty two and specifically twenty twenty three when they're going to have a many more draft picks on their team versus street free agents. Therefore, the cash is probably going to drop the next two years. So I think this cash spending for this year gives them that buffer towards that 90% and makes things a little easier if they need to back off the payroll for the next two years. Hmm. Yeah. So does that make that much of a difference in most teams' decisions during you know free agency and their own contract restructures and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, there's some teams that don't care. I mean, you know, you you yeah, look what, at what's the penalty for it if you if you don't pay the cash? It, it, it's it's never happened, at least in the last CBA. But if they did, then they would have to go back to the players on that roster and give them. They basically would say, if we came up three million dollars short, we'd find all the players that were on the roster for that year and divvy up the money between them all okay. evenly. But it's never really happened. But 
there are teams that do struggle with meeting that threshold every year. It seems like the Bengals, oddly enough, usually it's the, the Cowboys, hmm. even though they're the 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 Dak Prescott and uh extension this year really helped them out just like the Watson thing helped out Texas last year. So the Cowboys are actually number one in cash spending this year, which is the first time in many years. They're usually at the very bottom. But the Colts, the Bengals, the Cowboys, the Texans are usually near the bottom when it comes to cash spending. So many teams like Atlanta, Los Angeles, uh the Rams, um, Philadelphia, Seattle, those teams and Green Bay, obviously, surprisingly, with not having a direct owner, those teams would just blow cash spending out the window. So there's not too many teams that are concerned with it, but there are a few teams at the bottom, like I said, like the Colts, like the Bengals, mm-hmm. that will try to use that little that little clause to limit some of their free agent work. But it, okay. it doesn't happen often, but it, it, it is a factor in there for some teams. I mean, I've, I preach this all the time. People talk about how, you know, like next year, if we make certain moves and we're going to have teams going to have 60, 70 million dollars in cap space, we're going to be able to go spend out the wazoo. Not really. Teams have a cash budget, you know, just because you have yeah. 50 million dollars in available cap space doesn't mean the team has 50 million dollars that they can spend. Or, or know, the owner's cap- willing to spend, you know. Right, yeah. Every year the team sets a cash budget, and they're going to spend to that cap budget. And cap dollars is basically a, an accounting function, an allocation of their cash. So, mm-hmm. you know, all those things will factor into what a team is 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 or is not able to do in free agency. And but I just wanted to throw that out there for the Texans. It, it may be completely off, but that's just one of my thoughts with their heavy cash spending this year. With the contract restructures, it gives them, it just gives them a little buffer on the next two years when it comes to the cash window. Gotcha, that makes sense. I've never, I haven't heard that at all before, and uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like it could play like some of a factor in it. I still think even with the repercussions from it, you'd still be better off just kind of going all in on you know, using this as like a gap year, so that way you can actually start the rebuild fully next year after the Watson contract, and then also and just kind of like jumpstart it too, because like I think by all means, you know, this was a, a lost season where they didn't really find anybody for next year. I think they found a lot of cornerstone players at all. I think the only good things you can say is that Jonathan Grenard's like Whitney Merciless and could be the you know third best player on a really good front seven. Um, you know, Nico Collins may be like a possible number two wide receiver, but I think he's quarterback dependent and it's hard to know exactly what you may get out of him. I think now that we have Howard at left tackle, there's some like, you know, something actually good there. And like the interior of the defensive line's in a in a pretty good spot too. But like that still is kind of um like you you'd expect to find out more about your own roster and more about you know what maybe is something of a cornerstone player and even in, even for most rebuilding teams too. Yeah, and yeah, I was hoping he, I was hoping Casario would kind of go scorched earth, kind of what Reggie McKinney did with with Oakland at mm-hmm. the time, where he just offloaded as many contracts as he could and just had it just accumulated all the dead money in one year and then started fresh after that and laid a great yeah. foundation for for Mayock and Gruden to take over and you know but as you mentioned there's really I mean there's really no just major cornerstone players to hang your hat on with this roster there's some quality players to build around but there's just no man that's the guy you that's the guy you want to build around that's mm-hmm. one of your just pure foundational pieces the building's going to start shaking if you remove him kind of thing so that's the unfortunate part about this and hopefully he'll find a few more 
find some foundation players in you know the next draft or two because there's there's really not any strong building pieces on this roster at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess like that's the only good thing about like, the draft this past year is that they did find you know a few good players in it. I think Brevin Jordan's production has been kind of overrated because he's had some problems beating man coverage, and they don't use him as a blocker at all. But like, yeah, he's a better route runner than you know Farrell Brown is, and he's pretty much the same player as Jordan Aikens at the moment, but is isn't like you know thirty years old like he is. And Lopez is going to be a starting you know run stopping defensive tackle who has some you know that has the ability to collapse the pocket a little bit too. And then Collins may be a number number two wide receiver, and so I think given their like, draft capital they had this year, I think they did a good job you know building around it, even though they didn't cast that UDFA net too. But that's the only thing that gives me sort of hope for Casario being the guy who you know, builds the next good Texans team. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And there's, like I said, there's, there's plenty of players on this roster and you can, you can, you can use two hands to count it up. I mean, there's more than, more than a few players to, to build a future around. It's just, you're still looking for that cornerstone mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. I can, whether it's the, you know, which is obviously the quarterback. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So looking at next off season, it's, this is all according to Over the Cap, the place that you do some work at, too. Um, the Texans have 27 players under contract and are projected to have, projected to have $40 million in cap space. Um, and with these are including, this is not including like really easy cuts like Marcus Cannon for $6.3 million, Eric Murray with $5.2 million, Fairbairn at one point nine, Mitchell at three, Parrot Lewis at three point five, Jenkins at three. These are all like kind of, um, cut options that you kind of alluded to that you know, they may be able to get up to, get up to like sixty or seventy dollars in cap space, and that's not including you know possible tensile trade or releasing Cunningham as well. So, do you think the Texans are in a good spot, you know, cap wise, to be able to add talent next off season, or are you think this is going to be kind of like another gap year with the uh, the way this is kind of looking at the moment? No, I think they're, I think from a cap standpoint, I think they're perfectly fine. They're, as you mentioned, they're going to, they have five moves right off the bat from, from the start of the offseason that they can make with Murray, Cannon, Cunningham, Fairbairn, and Pierre Lewis. It'll bump them up. You know, right now the calculator on OTC will push that number up to 59 million in cap space. Just got to keep in mind that the team will sign uh, a good bulk of futures contracts in January. So that'll that'll eat up probably I think like eight or nine million dollars in cap space. So mm-hmm. just keep that in mind. So even with those moves, you're still looking at fifty million before you even do a trade for for Tussle or or Watson. So the team has a ton of cap space to work with, and they'll probably you know like we said, the cash is going to be the king on this. So it's all going to be up to how much cash McNair wants to spend for 2022, and they'll probably kind of spread out. I think, I think they'll probably spread out that cap space over the next two or three years. I don't foresee them diving in heads first into 2022 and, and you and using a ton of that cap space up, you know, you might start seeing back to back to the, the Rick Smith and uh, Chris Olson days when they drafted Watson and were carrying, you know, 25, 30, $40 million of cap space over from year over year in preparation of what they had coming down the road with Watson and other extensions. So I think you're probably going to see that same kind of reset again. You, you know, he'll, he'll hopefully we'll see a few key sign, you know, big name signings out there. Free agency, unfortunately is just a giant crap shoot. You, you, your hit rate 
on free agent signing is extremely low. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very rare that you're going to have a Jonathan Joseph type signing that has impact and has continued impact for year over year. So you hope to get a year or two out of your free agent class and, you know, we'll probably see a, a big name or two, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect him just to go all crazy with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're, they're, they're in great shape. It's just, it's, it just, it's all going to come down to what, what kind of cash he's going to be able to spend or be willing to spend, you know, whether or not he kind of continues that same mentality of having a heavy middle class on the roster. That was a big staple in, in new England. They didn't have a, a top heavy from a cap dollar standpoint, didn't have like a very, top heavy roster when you have you know six players taking up 60 percent of your cap Mm -hmm. in new england it was more the the middle class once you got past the top five charges the next 30 players were all they weren't minimum pay players they were all you know minimum you know a a million up to two and a half million it was it was was just a very big middle class you know my my buddy who does the same thing that i do for for the Patriots, he he tells me every year that the Patriots always have the largest number of players on their roster that have a cap charge between one million and three million compared to the rest of the league. So it'd be interesting to see, and that that's in place now for twenty twenty one. I'd be curious to see how that roster construction is going to go forward now that he'll be able to include more draft picks. You know, especially if he trades Watson and or Tunsil, he's going to have a bulk, a, a, a gigantic amount of dra- a draft picks for the next three years. So it'd be interesting to see the roster construction from that standpoint as well going forward. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I'm just hoping he just like signs good players, you know, and uh, that, that's ultimate at the end of the day. I mean, you can talk like dollars and, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. Sign, sign good players. That, that, I mean, it's easier said than done. But, yeah, that's the ultimate goal is f- find players that contribute. And it doesn't matter what the cost is at the or how your roster is constructed at the end of the day if you're signing quality players that contribute to your team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, it's just kind of like I think the biggest example, like the Patriots versus the Texans, when Ever O'Brien was GM, was that you know the Texans gave Eric Murray that ludicrous contract, and then you watch the Patriots give Adrian Phillips, you know, two years, seven million dollars, and he's probably like one like the fifteen, like as far as like the strong safeties goes, like he's one of the probably top 15 strong safeties in football who you makes a lot of plays who just had some injury problems previously. And that's like the top, like that's a Patriots signing for you. You know, you don't pay a guy a contract you would never get anywhere else. You pay a guy, you know, two years, 7 million or, you know, two years, $6 million and you get two years out of them and you're able to just like get a good football player who makes plays out of it, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's always what you hope for in free agency is to find, that second that player in the second and third wave that gives you the same impact that a first wave player would potentially give you for you know 60% of the cost so mm-hmm. you know i think that's probably where Casario is going to do a bulk of his work again is in, in wave 2 and wave 3 we'll see what happens I, the biggest thing that i'm curious about is how he values pass rush versus coverage yeah and then if he's willing to pay wide receivers. Um, yeah. You know, New England typically did not pay wide receivers. Bill O'Brien did not like paying wide receivers. He very much, off the record, what I heard that he was never wanted to, he didn't want to pay Will Fuller. He, he didn't like the Hopkins contract. He did not like the amount of money that those receivers, he felt like, you know, I'd rather have 
four wide receivers making seven, eight million dollars a pop versus one guy making sixteen and one guy making you know rookie mm-hmm. money. So it'd be curious. I'm curious. That's the two, the three position groups. And I'm really curious to see how Casario Casario values on a, from a money and cap standpoint if he's willing to pay those positions or which ones he's willing to pay if he's willing to pay a defensive back over a pass rusher or, or vice versa. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think also like the way they're kind of built too. Um, and like, it also kind of depends on what scheme they kind of run also that just like your front four pass rushing and Levy Smith defense is more important than your quarterback play. And so if, how much of a contribution like Levy Smith's defense, you kind of lends to it. I think will be interesting too, but yeah, you know, uh, Bruce Ellington and Darren Fells really warped, you know, Bill O'Brien's mind while he was the head coach here. And so looking here at Deshaun Watson, he has a cap hit $40 million next year, $35 million in salary, and $5 million in bonus. The Texans would save $24.2 million by trading him. Do you think his contract is going to hinder the Texans' ability to trade him all next year? And uh, what's your ideal Deshaun Watson trade package at the moment? Oh, I, I am torn between just straight-up draft picks or if it's draft picks and players you know i'd you know part of me is part of me you know because i don't know if there's any quarterbacks in this draft class i haven't really dug into the draft class yet but you know we'll see what happens that the contract isn't trade prohibitive by any means i mean the bulk of the the heavy money has already been paid out by the texans so there's really nothing to uh really nothing to be to hold them back from that i mean any any team that's getting this contract is actually getting a pretty good deal. And on top of that, since his salary is so large for 2022, anybody who gets his contract, the first thing they can do is, is restructure yeah. it and find a ton of cap dollars because the, the pro rated bonus money is going to stay with Houston. So they're going to have a huge, any receiving team can just take that contract, restructure it and just create 20, 20 plus million dollars easy in cap space. So, it's going to be cheap, so the contract's not a prohibiting factor. My, you know, if if you know, let's just say, I wouldn't even know. We'll just say Miami's, you know, who who they're looking at trading with. You know, at this point, there's really nobody on their team that really interests me from a player standpoint. So it would just have it would have to be a bulk of draft picks. You know, whether that's let's assume for the sake of this exercise that Watson is not indicted and his. And he ends up settling come February-ish. You know, let's just assume those things happen. Then it should easily get three first, and and a, and a couple of twos, or at least three ones and a two, and you know maybe a day three pick or something like that. That's got to be the minimum if if everything cleans up with his with his legal issues. If he gets indicted or something else happens or he ends up going through his deposition, which he should not and hopefully does not have to go through that deposition for his sake, mm-hmm. which is going to happen in February. That's where trade value might become an issue. So the Texans by, you know, by holding off this pass off this past trade deadline, put a pretty big bet on what's going to happen yeah. with him and it, and what they can get out of what kind of trade assets they can get back. So, if if they found a team that had some young players, you know, if you could get a good edge rusher, a good defensive back, I'm not really interested in wide receivers. I think you can find those in the draft pretty easily. 
But I think if you can get a pass rusher and or a good defensive back, preferably a cornerback that fits your scheme, in addition to the draft picks, then that's fine too. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I'm not really, there's really nobody out there that interests me from getting a return quarterback. You know, like, so, like I say, <clears throat> This is, not, this is not probably a plausible situation, but just for the sake of an example, if you were to trade with like Cleveland to get Baker Mayfield back as a reclamation project or something like that, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's really any or New York Giants and you get back Daniel Jones as you know as a reclamation project. I really don't see that as a benefit. I'd rather just go out and get a a Teddy Bridgewater or Marcus Mariota or something like that in free agency. So. Suffice to say, short answer is probably draft picks. And if there's a very capable young player, then I'm on board with that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think two guys in Miami that stand out are Javon Holland because he could just replace Justin Reed as a deep middle safety. And Jordan Phillips is like a really good 3-4 edge run defender already. And he's been a – his pass rush acumen's really jumped up the past you know, three weeks as well too. Mine is uh, – mine's still the New York Giants because you get picks number 6-7 and I think that would be enough for me to make the trade. You can kind of figure out the, the little bit of things aside from there. You know, maybe Daniel Jones has some sort of Ryan Tannehill potential playing in like a non-stupid offense after you know, Jason Garrett not having any idea that he's a good vertical passer the last two years there and the problems that they've had their offensive line, the Saquon Barkley injury, and all that's never fully like meshed out. And like at least with Jones, like you know, he has speed and can throw the ball deep downfield. And if you like a good play action passing attack around that maybe there's something there but I just like the ability to get you know two top 10 picks in this draft and then that way you have one of your own you could trade down with one of those and grab a quarterback and like you know pick 15 maybe pick another first round pick after that and then that'd be enough for me just considering the Watson you know legal allegations I don't think there'd be that much of a kind of question that he wouldn't want to play for New York concerning the market and I think Giants also just kind of desperate to be good after having the the bad run they've had since McAdoo and Eli Manning for the last, you know, six, seven years or so. Yeah, the Giants are an interesting an interesting team for this. And I say that for a couple reasons. A, their owner, John Mara, is, he's a pretty conservative guy. He's cranky, and too. So, he's real cranky nowadays. <laughs> he, he does flip-flop a lot on things. It's, it's not very consistent. But I say conservative because – and it makes me – you know, he was big behind the taunting rule and all mm-hmm. that stuff, and he's very old school when it comes to the game. And so I wonder if that mentality carries over with uh, player perception, specifically with Watson, if that's something he would be interested in and having associated with his team, regardless of the outcome of Watson's situation. And on top of that, the other, the other, the other factor to that is it sounds like, by all accounts, Gettleman's out. So you got a new yeah. GM coming in. Is the new GM going to want to make this huge splash and trade away tons of draft draft capital? You know, specifically, you know, if he traded away six six and seven this year, thirty eight this year, and a one in twenty twenty three, potentially more. You know, even twenty twenty four, is he willing to do all that to land Watson and make a big splash coming out right out the gate? Maybe that's the marching orders that Mara gives him, or as a new GM, I guess it. Just, I mean, it obviously just depends on the GM that mm-hmm. that comes in there. If it's a young guy who's not willing to to make that kind of splash, or if it's, you know, I'm trying to remember the Chiefs GM, God, what was his name? The one that bef- was the one before, before Veach. Pioli? Was it Pioli? No, before Veach, and okay. then he went, um, Buddy Boy. 
he always calls Chris Ballard. I can't remember his name now. He always say, "Hey, buddy boy, hey, buddy boy." Um, you know, he's a very he was a very aggressive GM and made those big splashes. So, and that would be the kind of GM that would make that kind of move for um, you know, that's the kind you know. So it just depends on what GM, what type of GM comes in there, and kind of what perception Mara has of of Watson. But the Giants, yeah, I mean. That would be a fantastic situation for the Texans to get that kind of draft capital, and then you take the that six and seven and start just trading back. I mean, maybe you use one of them, you know, for for a key component, but maybe start trading back and accumulate and accumulate and build off of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's my like kind of a Deshaun Watson like ideal scenario for Houston. I think the other thing about the Giants too is that they're kind of like a, a built out roster. You know, they've drafted high already a lot in the draft. They used their free agency dollars last year. They're kind of like a, a team that it kind of feels like it's a quarterback away and some injury luck, and you expect there to be some defensive improvement next year after having like a really bad run defense this season too. So the last question I have for you, and uh, I kind of want to do like a rapid fire for next offseason with the four biggest contracts the Texans have. So okay. Larry Tensel is at $26 million cap hit for next year. Zach Cunningham at $12.8 million. Brandon Cooks at $16.2 million. Um, how do you think the Texans are going to handle these three players next offseason? So Tunsil, trade, Cunningham release, Murray release, Cooks, and keep around his uh, contract voids after the 2022 season, so I think he'll stay as is. Yeah, that's the way I see as well, too. And I think, and even like Tunsil, you're kind of mentioning if you trade Tunsil to another team, or with Watson, if you traded him, they can always just restructure the contract, create cap space. I think with Tunsil, if you trade him, they would just extend him right away and then drop down that, you know, his his guaranteed salary for this upcoming season. They give him you know, four or five years or whatever and try to keep him there long term. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine a team actually trading thing for Cunningham considering his contract and just how bad he's been. And so I think that's just going to be a sunk cost that you have to eat. Yep, I agree. All right, so I got one more question for you since that sure. went fast. How soon do you think it's going to be until we see another good Houston Texans team? I would say probably 2024. It, I I base that off the fact that they probably don't find a quarterback in in this coming draft, which means you're drafting a quarterback in 2023, which more than likely means you're looking at, you know, six, seven wins with that quarterback. So 2024, before we really start really turning the corner, unless they just find a put together a fantastic roster in the offseason for 2022, you know, and find a bridge option at the quarterback. Mm Mm-hmm. So that that would be my guess that you start seeing really meaningful meaningful wins. You know, there'll be excitement starting building in 2023. You'll start seeing, you know, say they got the drafted rookie quarterback. You know, and you got you got a big name out there and he's, you know, getting 5 6 wins that first year, but he's building on something. They're building on something. They really mm-hmm. got something going. Then 2024 is the year that you know, you really start making that big push. Yeah, I can see that, and that's like that's the way I see it too. If they hit in the draft, um, that like probably by 2024 they could have a good football team again. And like the other thing is like people kind of forget that rebuilds can and should be pretty quick in the in the NFL. And like if you have like one really great draft class, like we saw with the Colts in 2018, you know that can spring your team you know pretty quickly and dramatically. And if you have a good coaching staff around it too, like they're able to get with. You know, Reich and Eberflus as well too, and so you can you can change pretty fast. But like the fear, of course, is that 
They something happens with Watson, they can't trade him because of the legal stuff, or they don't get the package that they expected to get, and they miss on the draft picks. You know, this upcoming year, and uh, and then if that happens, you know, you don't you don't if they don't springboard the Watson trade, it may be a very long time until they're a good football team again. By the same side of the coin or the other side of the coin, if they you nail the Watson trade, I think I do agree. I think by 2024 they should be able to be a playoff team already. Yep. Yep. Completely agree. Well, uh, that's all I got for tonight, Troy. We had a lot of these listener questions, but we have a lot of them, and it's uh, you know we're 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 dads on school nights, and so I don't take up too much more of your time. But we'll uh, I'll, I'm sure I'll, I'll get them in some sort of mailbag or something on another date. But uh, so Troy, where can we find your stuff? What do you have going on? Um, and make sure to tell us how to check out the the cap and trade you know listing room thing on Twitter as well too. That was a lot of fun to do last week. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Texans Cap. Um, I haven't been writing as much as I used to in the past, but you know I do a lot of the contract data over over the cap dot com. And then yeah, on Tuesday nights at nine p.m. Central Time, we do cap and trade on Twitter Spaces. So we do it live. So we rotate. We get different guests every week. You know, Matt was on with me this past week. Uh, Landry Landry Locker and uh, Mike Meltzer will be with me tomorrow night and so we do those weekly every night and then they're turned over as podcasts later in the week for folks who can't listen to them but those on tuesday night they're really fun you know we have a lot of fan interaction people come in ask their questions it's you know the the listeners kind of drive the show on those tuesday night episodes so if you're available around nine o'clock on tuesday nights you know hop in just hop on your phone on twitter and join in yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm definitely gonna try to in tomorrow. I've listened to a couple of the episodes, you know, during the year recorded, and I didn't check out the the Twitter space things we did yesterday. But whenever I'm watching Jonathan Taylor, you know, have carry number thirty, you know, for 250 yards, I'm making a movie of every Cam McGregor Hill tackle. I'm gonna try and make sure I can you know, turn in and listen to that um, tomorrow night. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, sounds good, man. We'll be looking out for you. So that's our show for tonight. Um, we'll be having our weekly preview show probably on, on Wednesday for Thursday morning. And uh, we'll, of course, be talking about the Texans-Seahawks game you know, sometime in the near future. Until next time, I'm Matt Weston. Thank you for listening to Bowery Radio. And thank you for being on tonight, Troy. Appreciate it for having me, buddy. We'll do this again sometime. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.